Do you often have people over that you give shirts to? No, I think you're the first person so far in a long time. So you've just been stocking up different sizes of shirts for this day. I'm glad that we wear the same size, though. Oh, yeah. This is useful. I mean, we're about the same size. We're about the same size. We're about the same size. I mean, both of us both of us could play quarterback. We just couldn't play like Brock Mansion. We couldn't. I was wondering how long it would take to get into this podcast before we start talking about Brock Mansion. I was going to ask Hannah before we started today who is uh, talking to us via Skype, who we have. I know, I'm feeling so left out. On the full screen right here. Um, I was going to ask Hannah before we started. Uh, I'm totally distracted because I'm pressing buttons now. I was going to ask her to uh, look up a like a highlight or a clip or like some <laughs> something of like Brock Mansion taking a snap and uh, that we could, like as a segment on the episode today, have you do an on-the-spot commentary over. <laughs> and then I realized that much like starting out the episode like this, it's probably only funny to us. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's, it's not too funny to narrate uh, quarterback, you know, Dropping back, not seeing any options, trying to throw the ball out of bounds, but then uh, fumbling it and covering his own fumble and then falling down on it and getting sacked. Uh, Sounds I, pretty funny to me. That's so harsh. I assume that's <laughs> Mansion's career. <laughs> Poor guy. He's he's not a fan of the show, is he? I don't know. I, Brock Mansion, if you're listening to this podcast right now, please let us know. Game of Thrones has yeah, no disrespect grown in a way that none of us expected us to expected it to. Did you expect it to become such a not only a success? With the, I think you were a fan. We've talked about other prestige dramas. We just talked about Twin Peaks a bunch. Yeah, yeah. Before we started recording, so you're a fan of of the level of attention to detail that they've brought to the show outside of working on it yourself. But uh, what was I talking about? Brock Mansion? No, the, the <laughs> expectations. And I think it, it's a good question about like what everybody expected of the show. Certainly, of course, everybody hopes that their show is going to be kind of like an era and genre defining show. But I don't think anybody realistically expected that. For myself, um, this is what I expected. So going into the show... I started to research the fandom around Song of Ice and Fire and saw that it was extensive, mm. you know, extensive. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there's an, there was already an entire wiki devoted just to A Song of Ice and Fire, which are just some of the books that George R. R. Martin has produced. And there are people that were tons of fans of him, right? So um, what I what I expected is that if the show went nowhere... You know, uh, my languages might have a future with the fans and it might become like, you know, their beloved thing that they mentioned. And it's like, oh, remember when they tried to make a show out of this? And it's like, <laughs> like yeah. Like a cult kind of yeah, thing? Yeah, and like cult all the, all the of fans thing. of the books would have like, you know, the one season on DVD. That's still pretty cool to yeah. be a part of. That, you know, that is still It cool. would be. And like, and they would talk about it and, you know, every so often would bring it up again and say like, you know, I think it would have been great if it kept going. I don't understand why HBO canceled it and so on. But um, for myself, I didn't expect it to... Uh, actually like peter out like that for two reasons one when hbo greenlights something at that point hbo was coming off the sopranos right um don't forget about entourage yeah (laughs) johnny drama look entourage was up there you know for a time it was what everybody talked about for a time it was just the movie that you know torpedoed everything but um, (laughs) but uh, it's like if hbo uh puts out a show you know it's going to be high quality Mm. and they're going to put a lot of money behind it um, that, uh, you know, 
if if they decide they don't want to put like their full force behind it, they'll just cancel the show. That was that was basically the reputation that HBO had at that time. Second, they had just experienced tremendous success with True Blood, right? True Blood, I mean, it's urban fantasy, but it's something that uh, is so outside of the mainstream that was a runaway hit that I thought, all right, this show has a chance to maybe be the next True Blood. Maybe not be as successful, but with the success that True Blood has had, uh, Game of Thrones has a chance. So that's what I thought. Uh, realistically, I expected it. I expected it to run a little bit. I didn't know if they would be able to actually get through all the material in the books, but I thought it would be up there so that when people talked about, you know, HBO, they'd say, oh yeah, they got good stuff. They got Sopranos, True Blood, and Game of Thrones is pretty good. I thought like it was going to reach that level. And that's still a hopeful guess probably, right? Yeah. <laughs> maybe one day it'll... Compared to how likely it is for that to happen. Yeah. Maybe maybe one day. Maybe one day Game of Thrones will be as successful as True Blood. I, <laughs> I, still, I still hope. I think, that, you know, maybe um, maybe when this next season comes out, that'll be what takes it over the top. I, I just hope so. When I was a kid, they had... I grew up in a small town and we had this books, music, TV, video store, you know, those places that just has like a, kind of like a, uh, before there was all these websites that we could go to, like a physical place that you could go to that has all these things. Yeah. You mean like Sam Goody in the warehouse? Exactly. Right? Yeah. Something like that. You know what that is, right, Hannah? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Just, just making sure. Cause I, I, yeah. your age is hidden in right now. I have no idea. <laughs> Zach and I are the same age. The same age. And you're. Born in 1989, mm-hmm. like Taylor Swift. Holy you guys are so young. Okay, so um, <laughs> anyway, but yeah, we're all thirty, right? right? Okay, so we're all we're, thirty. Yeah. To, okay, to, to today, Sam Goody, the warehouse. Go for it. There's a store that was like that, and I would see things like South Park cheesy poofs and different officially merchandised products from like this TV show <laughs> that my parents were like really leery about letting me watch until we eventually got the VHSs and they couldn't they couldn't do anything about it. <laughs> like a friend brought it over. Yeah. Uh, it went from uh, that's when I first started seeing like these uh, like TV shows and different things. Obviously, uh, being young and having an obsession with Star Wars and having like an attic full of those toys, so I was I was used to merchandising and uh, or of the stuff that I thought was interesting story wise being a part of my life. Uh, but that was like. Uh, it was it's i i knew then that it was kind of weird that tv had reached like the saturation point that there was this popularity with south park that it was it was so big that there were toys that made it all the way to where i live like a, <laughs> oh, I see. a cheesy yeah. poof box made it all the way to where i live <laughs> and uh and true blood did uh, did that too i think that same store years later after i had grown up and was coming back and it was it's closed now and it's been replaced by a planet fitness uh, and there's a, a farm feed store directly attached to it as well. So it's right. a giant Planet Fitness and a feed store that sells like a commercial grade mosquito killer. Store upgrade. I got it. Exactly. Yeah. What was I saying? Uh, so we <laughs> got too lost true in blood. the yeah yeah uh, the feed store. <laughs> it's it's different having people in person for the podcast. It's so much more intimate. Um, I saw those True Blood the the drinks that they have in the show universe. Yeah. The type O negative or whatever. Yeah. The they they were selling those drinks. <laughs> and that's the coolest thing in the world to me. 
I love these little individually wrapped, uh, you know, perfectly packaged pieces of merchandise from these fictional worlds, like a birdie bots, every flavored bean. I know Hannah, you bought way too many of them for no reason. You don't even like jelly beans, right? You don't even want <laughs> yeah. a pumpkin pasty. So you don't want pumpkin juice from the theme park or overpriced <laughs> gilly water for God's sakes, which is just bottled water. It's just water. Right. <laughs> but for some reason you do want it. And it's because it's, it's made its way into your heart. It's made its way into all of our minds, like I said, if it's made it all the way to that place, True Blood was this thing. And uh, I can imagine what I can't imagine. I can maybe think, but I can't really imagine what it must have been like for you to witness all of that and to be a part of it. And then for this to come along and for you to have the thoughts that you had about the series and about its potential, especially being post Lord of the Rings, post Harry Potter books, post Harry Potter uh, movie success, post Twilight movie success, which I think had a lot to do with True Blood yep. success on Absolutely. HBO. To be post all of that and to be at, at a time where the internet was really sort of everyone was getting their feet wet and all these entities were taking off in a direction. You had those feelings about the potential of Game of Thrones, how I can't imagine what it must be like to have been creating it and then it to far exceed those expectations yeah. to go from there and also to, to reach that point that you were talking about with true blood to have what I just saw today in my little store down here in Brooklyn, King in the North and mother of dragons. They only have some beer in the store, but by God, right now <laughs> they got a smart person that's merchandising that store because nice. they for sure have game of Thrones beer right now there for sale. Just go. like those true blood things. <laughs> Crazy. Yeah. What's that like? You know, um, I'll, I'll tell you, it's 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 really interesting to see that it's gotten to this point. If you actually compare my own personal expectations, especially for the languages from back then, so I thought that you know the show had a chance. I, I never, I obviously never thought it was going to be as big, but um, for the languages, I thought pretty much not from the get go, but very soon after, I thought we were sunk, and I'll tell you exactly why. So, and. Uh, I think July was the first time that uh, the Language Creation Society had any contact with uh, Game of Thrones. So that was that was when it first happened. The Language Creation Society put together a competition, and that competition started in September. In October, I think it was October 30th, uh, so the, the competition finished on like October 11th, I want to say. And on October 30th, that was when I got the news that I had won the competition, and I was the language creator for Game of Thrones. Um, so that was wild. And I was really excited and really high on it while at the same time, not being able to tell anybody except for my wife what had happened. And then of course, even if I had like, I mean, my mother would have been excited, like, oh, a TV show or like, you know, oh, HBO. It's like, she never would have heard of a song of ice and fire. <laughs> she right. didn't know what it was at that point. But, um, so that's October 30th, right? So like the, throughout the entire month of November, it's like, you know, I'm just, I got stars in my eyes. Then December hits and Avatar comes out. Avatar, the, the James Cameron movie. Yes. Mm -hmm. And and what happens uh, somehow, like somehow I hadn't heard of it until then, but it's advertised shortly before the movie comes out that there's a created language in this movie. And I was like, well, fuck, that's it. <laughs> the, the, anybody who was going to be interested in a created language, this is this is going to be the one. It's going to hit them. And then by the time Game of Thrones comes around, it's going to be like, oh, they also did that. Um, and uh, and and I was pretty right, actually, at least at the beginning. 
because it's like, man, this the the announcement comes out about this language in the movie, and before the movie is even released, somehow fans have found pieces of the language online through some means, and use that to write a letter to the guy who created the not V language for Avatar, Whoa. saying, please teach us your beautiful language, teacher. And like, then, you know, the movie comes out and then there's all this stuff about it, like a website springs up overnight. And um, there he's going to like Avatar fan meetups twice a year, once in America, once in Europe. And, and I was seeing this throughout 2010. And I was like, that's it, man. It's just not going to happen for this. So Game of Thrones premieres and you know pretty soon i don't know if it was just like after one episode but certainly of course by certainly by episode nine game of thrones is a big hit mm. um but still yeah the language uh like the dothraki language it still hadn't really caught many people's attention i mean it caught the right people's attention like you know there was a producer who was producing a new show over on sci-fi who saw that and said yes we need this guy to work on the show so that was fine but i mean in terms of fans uh, I had a fan group at the beginning, the Dothraki fan group, and we had a weekly chat, um, and it was about six people strong, uh, and that was it. <laughs> and, you know, and not everybody always showed up every week. Uh, so, I mean, that was kind of like the extent of the fandom around Dothraki, and it never really picked up, honestly. Uh, so Game of Thrones continued to get popular. I continued to work on other shows, and so... People like more and more people found out about Dothraki and, you know, heard about Valyrian when it came out, but it never reached the level of fandom that something like uh, Nafi from Avatar had. What do you um, think that is? Uh, a couple of reasons. Um, but the main reason, I think, I mean, of course, there's all there's always recency. So they got out of the gate first. So that's one thing. But the other thing is that uh, Avatar was a movie like a billion dollar movie that tons of people saw that tons of kids see, you know. Game of Thrones, I mean, kids should not be watching that, man. Like, I mean, yeah. I mean, just. I agree. I mean, for, forget like even the stuff about like sexuality, some of the just extreme violence. Mm. It's yeah. real, though. I mean, it's real stuff. Right? No, it is real. It is real. But it's like, I just don't think kids kids need that. I mean, I certainly don't want like my daughter watching the Red Wedding until she's pretty old. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. that's just fucked up. Like, I haven't even watched that a second time. It's a door you can't close once no, you open it. You really can't. So you got to think right. about. So because of that, the uh, the audience of Game of Thrones skews older, hmm. and it, the fact remains that younger people get more interested in stuff. You know, like uh, older people, it's harder. Because you kind of have your own life to lead, right? Mm -hmm. And so with something like a language, that takes a lot of effort. And so this is why, at least in the past, you know, it's shifting a little bit. But you would see, you know, people that were really, really big in, in, in fandom, they were younger. Now, they might keep it with them as they grow older. But somebody that starts with something when they're older, the less likely they're, they're going to jump into cosplay, they're going to jump into learning a language or something like that. Right. Uh, sure. added, added on top of that was the way that uh, Game of Thrones and A Song of Ice and Fire has been built, both the books and the the show. Uh, they, they bill it as, this is fantasy for people that don't like fantasy, which is not really fair, No, I yeah. would say. But it is the way that it gets advertised for a lot, sure. you know? 
And so that's why there there's certainly a segment of the audience who who's like, yeah, I, oh yeah, I like Game of Thrones, but it's okay to like Game of Thrones because it's not really fantasy. Right. Yeah, did you see that guy? <laughs> he smashed that dude's head in. Yeah. That like, was the best scene I've ever seen. That girl's so hot. Yeah, it's like it's like, yeah, there's magic, there's dragons, uh-huh. there's, you know, elf-like people. Oh, but yeah. it's like, no, 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 no. But, but <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's that stuff, but it's it's not that stuff. Right. It's not like little Lord of the Rings stuff. Did you see that Game of Thrones Bud Light commercial during the Super Bowl? Yeah, you know. So I, I think that's part of it. And so it's like, you know, they 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 want to show watch so it's like, oh, violence and, and boobs and also this cool fantasy stuff. But I'm ignoring that because it's just violence and, and boobs. And really, you got the feels then, when that Goodbye Brother song comes on. You see Jon Snow's face after the baby and you're like, his face looks like the baby's face. <laughs> Jon Snow's a Targaryen. What? Uh, then you get the feels you and you think- question yourself. Sorry, Hannah, go on. <laughs> I love that you're on video. We should do you on video during the podcast more often. Yeah. Do you so, think that uh, go ahead, um, go ahead. as the show ends and people have more time to kind of play in the world and revisit things and spend more time thinking about language that the popularity will uptick? Or do you think that now that the show's over, it's kind of run its course and it'll just continue to kind of play in the background. Well, I think the, the I grab my power adapter. You oh, talk to Hannah. Oh, okay, okay. Well, um, I, I think the the popularity has already seen an uptick for the for the languages, uh, and that's really due to two reasons. One is just like um, there's been less of the you know fantasy for people that don't like fantasy uh, as as right. the show has progressed. Uh, I think right. it's been nice actually for society as a whole. It's been kind of like, you know, <laughs> training wheels. It's like we started you off with fantasy for people who <laughs> don't like The training wheels have come off. And now it's like, yeah. hey, maybe people can just like what the fuck they like, you know? Anyway, so um, so that's part of it. But the other part of it is that it's hard to kind of get into a language when you have to do all the work yourself. Because you, you know what I mean? It's like mm-hmm. uh, the same thing kind of like with uh, when you see like a video game popularizes something. Like people can get into that easier. So first, there was uh, the book I was able to do, Living Language Dothraki. So that was part of it. So now it's like, okay, you're into language. It's like, okay, go to all of these fan-made websites and literally read up on the entire grammar. It's like, well, maybe maybe I'm not going to do that. But now there's a book that's like 20 bucks and it's got a CD. It's like, ah, it's not bad. I can pick that up. So that was part I of it. I own it. You do? Yeah. Have I ever signed it? No, but I need you to. Have I ever met it's you It's on my person? bookshelf. Yeah, briefly. When? Conifer- I was at Conifer- Oh, now, now I super remember. Okay. So anyway, like if you want to come to Southern California, that's where I live. So, you know. We, I'll come we, bring you the book. You can sign it. Yeah. And, and also we can hang out. There's a there's a place near me called Harbor House. It's open 24 hours. They have the best milkshakes. Wait, what about Disneyland? Nice. Well, Disneyland isn't open 24 hours. Uh, I'm assuming she's taking be. the red eye out or something. Probably. You know, like arrive at like <laughs> two in the morning and then we'll go to Harbor yeah. House. It'll be cool. Probably. Anyway, so. Sweet. Um, so that was, that was part of it. And then of course the next big thing is the Duolingo I was able to do for High Valyrian. That's right. Um, Yeah. And that was just, uh, that was just amazing. Like uh, it's, I can't even really appreciate the scale of it because there are literally 800,000 people taking the course actively. Wow. Seriously? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, holy that's a lot of people. Dude. And that's that is a smaller number than people who have ever taken the course. It's more than a million. And like I I honestly don't even know how to process that because like in my head I still see 
you know, my, my six, six hardcore Dothraki fans, right? And now it's like, and, and furthermore, like, you know, I created the course, right? But that's like, that's kind of like the end of my involvement. I mean, I'm still working on the course and everything, and I still process the error reports and everything uh, for people to say, oh, you should allow this translation. No, learn the language better. But, um, <laughs> but it's like, aside from that, it's not like I interact with or ever have to interact with the people that take these, this course. So like, they're just, they're just doing it on their own. Like, and I don't even know about it. Like, you know what I mean? Like they they could just, they could just do it. I can't stop them. (laughs) Did you see that tweet that, uh, when you tweeted the picture of the sign, the greeting of Valerian, someone was like, I can read that. I read that. Oh yeah, I know. That's so nice. I just, I just, (laughs) and I just tweeted that out. And so it's so cool. Um, but yeah, I really, I really have a hard time comprehending the scale of it, like, or believing that it's real. But that's kind of reality now. It's weird. Now that the language is kind of in the hands of other people with Duolingo, it's like with any other language where people start to come up with slang or their own little colloquialisms or their own little style of speaking it. And it kind of evolves into more of what a language is this ever-evolving thing and not just something that you created for yeah. this fantasy series, which is kind of cool. That's precisely right. And uh, in fact, it's it's an interesting area of discussion, especially when it comes to created languages. You know, if you go back to the 19th century, many people have heard of Esperanto, uh, but few people have heard of a language called Volapük. Volapük. Yeah. Volapük. So this was a this was a language that was created to be the international language for communication. Everybody was oh my to, gosh, like a Rosetta Stone for languages, the key. Yeah, so uh, it was created by a, a, a Catholic uh, priest, and his name was Schleyer. Schleyer or Schleyer? I can never remember which one is correct. Anyway, so he creates this language, and uh, there's a lot of interest in it, right? And so people start learning it. And then they start using it and they're like, huh, you know, it'd be easier if we did this, this, and this. Because, of course, like the name Volapük is supposed to come from Puk. two English words. What's? World speak. Okay. Volapük. Volapük. Yeah. Like. Common it, tongue. I like that. It's like that came from the words world and speak. And you think this is easy? Yeah. No one's going <laughs> to learn this language. Dude. Yeah. So like, so like people were looking at it and saying like, Oh, you know, it'd be a little easier if we did this, this and this. Apparently he reacted very angrily, angrily and said, no, this language must be spoken in this way and in no other way. Wow. If you don't speak it this way, then you uh, don't have any right to speak the language. Anyway, later on, a few years later, uh, a guy named Zamenhof creates another language like this called Esperanto. He, on the other hand, presents it anonymously as a book, presents the whole language, and says, this is my gift to the world. I claim no ownership over it whatsoever, and you can use it however you want. And suddenly, everybody ditched Volapük, and uh, Esperanto became the international language. And Esperanto is still around. And uh, there are always a few kind of like internet loonies who try to pretend that Volapük is still around. It was dead before <laughs> the 20th century. Hit. Holy crap. So with something like High Valyrian, right, I, uh, I, I am responsible for creating the language in a certain state that it's going to be used on this show. But right. also, I mean, 
in kind of a higher sense, I'm creating it in a way that's supposed to reflect the world that George R. R. Martin created. And so I'm responsible for that. And so like, you know, when it comes to translating stuff for the show, I make sure that it is exactly the way that I think it should be. But when it comes to people using the language on their own, they don't necessarily need to do that. I mean, I've written up all the rules and say, you know, this is grammatical and this isn't. But to tell the truth, if a bunch of people just start using my language in a way that is, quote unquote, grammatically incorrect, but they're all doing it. Right. And they keep doing it. Oh, no, that's how that's how it happens. right? Yeah, I can't say it's wrong. I can say that's not how I envisioned it, but you're using it. Yeah. And it's working. And there's it's not like there's an authority on this. Right. Right. It's it's really this. That's the same with every single language. The only difference is that with uh, every other language, there's like millions of other speakers to to kind of like, you know, beat down the variations. So it's like that's why when kids are young and they innovate new strategies, they rarely, you know, they rarely make it to adulthood because there's enough other speakers around to say, no, no, don't say it that way. But if there weren't, which there aren't for a created language, right? I mean, there's just me, but even I'm, I'm going to die eventually. Mm. Then <laughs> it's just up to everybody who's using it to decide, all right, do we want to try to speak this in a way that was the exact way that the creator did it? Or do we not care and just enjoy using it the way we want to use it? And that's fine. I mean, what can I say? Yeah. Yeah. That's an interesting thing as somebody a linguist having created a language and then just kind of see it in the hands of people in a way that you haven't really been able to control. It's, it's an interesting thing. Yeah. A lot of fun. Voila puke. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think that there's a chance that, well, I guess well, Valyrian was replaced in the series by whatever they consider is the common tongue. So the same thing happened there. Everyone was like, we're not going to learn this ridiculously complicated language. Well, I mean, the history is a little different there because essentially what happened is, right, you had just the children of the forest over on Westeros, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and then the first men come over and bring over the old tongue. Uh, but they mostly kind of live not necessarily in harmony with the children of the forest, but at least they don't try to genocidally destroy them. Then the, uh, the what's it come over? The, um, the Andals. The Andals come over. They're the ones that bring the common tongue. Right. They're the ones that also really take it to the children of the forest. Now, yeah, they the, give it to them pretty good. Yeah. The, now, the uh, the first men that are north of the Neck, they kind of rebuff their advances. But even so, they eventually adopted the common tongue so that really the old, to- the old tongue, the only place where it exists is north of the Wall, where nobody's going. So um, over in... Essos, however, uh, Valyrian, in quotes, is still the language of the land, at least in the free cities and places. So the way that it works, and I really, I bless George R. R. Martin for doing it exactly this way. He has everybody say that they all think of themselves as speaking Valyrian, they just don't speak it properly. And that's really actually exactly the way people viewed their own languages um, when they were actually just descended from other languages. So like, People that were speaking early Spanish and early French and early Italian, they all thought of themselves as not speaking Latin properly, as opposed to we're actually innovating a brand new language. Right. Or like American English versus British English. Very early stages, though. Yeah. We can still understand each other. Right. Um, Yeah. So that's uh, that's basically. So I like that he mirrored that because it's very realistic in terms of how people, both how language evolves 
and how the actual speakers react to that evolution. Uh, because anything that diverges, it's always an error at the beginning. It is always an error. But then it's like suddenly people keep doing it and then there's more and then there's more and then the two groups don't understand each other. And pretty soon, no, you're just speaking a different language. That's how it works. So um, anyway, so yeah, the, so Valerian is still, a, is still the language over in Essos. I guess just when the Targaryens came to Westeros, I don't know, I guess it just didn't take hold as much. Really? Yeah, there were so few of them. There was no no need during the conquest to like spread their own language. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. It's another one of those traits, I assume, that they considered like a Targaryen trait when the ability to speak this language that not everyone else could relate to. Yeah. And then, of course, that's how a language dies. It's like, oh, our language is too pure for you. Right. Language is dead after mm-hmm. a while. That's how everything <laughs> dies, though, right? <laughs> yeah. Like, let's just let's put it behind this wall. You can't have it. Yep. This isn't for you. <laughs> <laughs> is there anything that you can glean? Because when, you, when you're talking about all this, I know that you have a deep understanding of the series. We've talked to you on the podcast before about A Song of Ice and Fire, and you've shared many opinions on how you feel about how things are going to go. And now I have you in this room. I can be like, hey, what have you translated into the final season that you can tell us on the podcast? <laughs> uh, so we'll get to that. But uh, knowing how you approach things, you have a deep understanding of um, you're, you're a big fantasy fan and with what you do with language and how you understand the dialect and these stories, how these authors are integrating the stuff that you know about being a linguist so much in their stories, how much are you able to see what everyone's up to sort of under the hood as you're reading these stories ahead of things? Like when you see, you you just spoke about how Valyrian is still used in the free cities right now. Yeah. Are, you, are you able to see that and then sort of have a time machine in your head and, and understand like at what path along their civilization is, like how far they've broken away from it being the main region to it being a, a sort of like strangely common, uncommonly used dialect, but still being commonly used and it being spread across the world. Like, are you able to sort of see where authors are seeding their story? And if so, like, is there any stories that don't do it very well that like don't handle the tribes and, and the flow of time very well? And, and also like, how do you think a song of ice and fire is? And maybe can you glean how far along their actual civilization is based off of how they're talking to each other. Maybe throw all the history stuff that we know about the long night out. How long do you think this has been up to if George has created a seamless universe? Like, what are these people, like, where are they at in their arc of civilization based off the languages that they're speaking? Okay, first to answer... A lot of questions, sorry. Yeah, to answer one of the questions very simply, most authors do a very bad job. Mm. Most of them do a bad job. That's a lot to... I figure that's so much to to figure out. I'm so glad that shows are, are... are paying attention to that now because you're adding so much depth to the story, not only in the the audio part that people are seeing, but also in the way that the characters are char- characters are connecting with what they're saying in the script and how that content uh, connects to the world that they're preaching about. Because if in Game of Thrones, for example, it's usually when they're using the languages that you've created, it's to really there's nothing there on accident it's there yeah. to, to convey power or to convey a, a certain trait about uh like when we're talking to one one uh to convey his ancientness you said that he's using the old tongue north yeah, of the wall yeah. you know there's very sp- fashion <laughs> there's very specific uh stuff around it anyway sorry to interrupt yeah, yeah, Go yeah. For it. well um so yeah like i said most most authors do a bad job and uh i think that when a lot of fantasy authors kind of like first see what's happening in Game of Thrones and think about it. They think, oh, I got to create a bunch of new languages. First, 
You can always hire somebody else. Uh, please, please, if you're a fantasy author, hire a language creator. I beg you. Plug your Especially, info right now. <laughs> yeah, like, no, and you don't have to hire me. You're like, I'm busy. I'm doing everything right yeah, now. <laughs> you, you do not have to hire me. You do not have to hire me. Let me tell you about a website, jobs.conlang.org. That's C-O-N-L-A-N-G.org. You can go and post a job and language creators will respond. You don't have to do it yourself. Uh, you probably shouldn't because you're probably going to do a bad job. Hire somebody who knows what they're doing. But anyway, even aside from that, I don't think that's the takeaway from Game of Thrones. I mean, there there is language material in Game of Thrones. But outside of that, the thing that blew me away about uh, George R. R. Martin's work is that he has a very clear understanding of language families and language spread. And that's what you don't see in works of fantasy. You don't necessarily have to see the languages in the book. But... If you have like many different peoples in your story, chances are they speak many different languages and that they are at different stages of their evolution. So it could be the kind of thing where it's like, you know, compare compare Spanish to Latin now uh, or Spanish to Italian now versus comparing American English to British English. Obviously, there's a huge difference there. They're, they're two different. Uh, they're both obviously related but two are quite a bit closer than the other two. Uh, and that's the type of thing that you see in George R. R. Martin's work. And you also see how, uh, you know, linguistic attitudes prevail in the day. So that's something that I was just talking about before, like the, the people speaking obviously different descended Valerian languages, uh, thinking of it as just kind of a bastard form of some pure language. That's, that's a very common kind of like attitude that you see speakers have. But it's just so nice seeing in George R. R. Martin's work that, I mean, obviously he talks about the history of peoples and movements and people conquering these people, but it's just nice to see him talk about those languages, that there was this Valyrian language, that there are these other cities where there are other languages which are just not quite proper Valyrian, which, you know, in linguist terms mean, yeah, these languages are undergoing radical evolution or diverging from the source from a, to a great extent. And you see over like in the Giscari empire, you can, you can just tell by what's going on there that uh, the Valerian that they speak is obviously going to be heavily influenced by the former Giscari language right. that used to be there. Um, and then again, like with the waves of people coming over to Westeros, he mentions, he talks about, you know, how people's languages changed over time. That is something that's really cool. And you don't need to show it by, you know, creating a language and putting a bunch of words in the conling in the book. You can just talk about these things generally the same way that you talk about the movement of peoples, because people don't move without a language. You know, they bring the language with them and then the language either spreads or it dies. And either of those facts is interesting for readers to know. It must happen, too. Yeah. It's going to happen. If there's a story and if there's people, then this happened. And so to know that and to fill that out, to have it set up and then to to expose to, to expose it, to write about it. That's yeah. It's like you say, it just really feels good when it when it works. It yeah. feels really real for me when I'm reading it and with just with all the stuff that I've read over the years, it, when it checks out sort of subconsciously, when I see the words make sense. And when, like you're saying, I'm talking about um, thinking about being a Marine and there's people around Daenerys that sometimes will throw out some like Giscari or something. And it's yep. like, that says a very particular thing about that character. Yep. And maybe how set in their ways are, they are about um, 
the topics at hand or how they want to carry out their agenda. It says a lot of different things about them. And it's a very subtle flex of the universe that we're inside of. And uh, it feels real. Yeah. It makes it, makes it really good. That so, must have yeah. been really fun for you being as interested and involved as you were in this art form and then to like be able to sink your teeth into subject material so meaty. Like an author that had sort of like been inside of your head almost, it seemed, right? Yeah. And, you know, it's uh, it's something that I wish I could continue with or I got to explore more in the series. In particular, it's just, you know, after, you know, having High Valerian and then creating Astapori Valerian and then creating the Miranese version of Astapori Valerian, basically Slaver's Bay Valerian. That's really the best way to put it, um, is uh, I wish I could create more of those Free Cities languages. Right. I want to. I want to create the volunteer stuff. I want to create Bravosi. I want to create Volantine. I want to see what you know Pentoshi is like. You know the Mirish language is like. I I I have tons of ideas to just uh, because like really when you're talking about evolving a new language from an old one, it, really what you're talking about is just taking a bat to it. But you know you can take a you can take an aluminum bat. You can take a a wooden bat. I want to take different bats to That's, It's like, what happened? I want to do some different stuff to it, you know? Because That's so cool. I, I set up so many things. Um, I, I, I basically, I set up so many cannons to fire in the High Valyrian language. There are things I did there because I was like, in some language that descends from this, I'm going to be able to do this and it's going to be so cool. Oh, wow. And I did some of those things with... Um, Astapori Valerian, but not all of them because they didn't make sense. So it's like given the region and given the Giscari language and where it came from, um, like one of the things that it didn't make sense to do was to get rid of the uh, the Q, the K sound of Valerian. Valerian distinguishes K and K. I don't know if you can hear the difference between those, but it's the difference between K and Q. So that distinction remains in, uh, in Astapori Valerian. But that distinction is going to disappear in almost every other version of Valyrian that appears in the Free Cities. And what it's going to allow me to do, if I ever eventually get to do this, it's going to allow me to make a C character. So like, you know, our C in Latin uh, or, or in English, how it's sometimes pronounced like a K and sometimes pronounced like an S. Well, that's because basically um, the, the one that came from Latin underwent a sound change where it was always cut. But then before E and E, it changed. So in Italian, it becomes ch. In French and then in English, it becomes su. So, uh, but then uh, from Germanic, English got K, regular K. And so it never changes. And that's why we have things like kid and keep, mm. right? That don't become sit and seep, okay? So thus we have two letters, K that's always pronounced K, and then C that's sometimes pronounced S and sometimes pronounced K. I set that up for Valerian. What I set up was that the Q, huh sound, was just going to become K, and it was going to become K everywhere. The K, on the other hand, that's the one that was going to go undergo a change. And so in these daughter languages, you'll see, you'll have to learn like these two characters, and it's like this one's pronounced K sometimes, and S sometimes, or CH sometimes, and this one's pronounced K all the time. And you just have to learn it. That's the kind of stuff you can set up when you're creating the older language. But you got to be able to have the younger language to fire those cannons. I'm waiting, man. Someday. I think someday. (laughs) (laughs) We'll cross our fingers for you. We'd like it too. So speaking of, what's the deal with the spinoffs? Uh, well, I'll tell you this. There are no spinoffs that are set in the new free cities. <laughs> I, have to, I have to say, when they started announcing that there were going to be spinoffs, I mean, of course, nobody was surprised. I mean, 
uh, the you know the HBO executives are saying like we want this show to run ten years like yeah why would they want it to stop <laughs> definitely not so um, uh, so that wasn't a surprise I was disappointed when I heard that all of the ideas were prequels mm. um, yeah I don't know I I know that there's there's interesting stuff there but um, I just really had this and I I should say right now I have no idea what's going to happen with this character. Like absolutely none. And, and I'm sure we'll get into that in a minute, but I, I love the idea of Arya kind of saying goodbye to her family in Westeros and then striking out at sea and becoming like, you know, the captain of a ship that sails to the various lands. Oh yeah. Like all the lands that we yeah. All the lands that we've never seen, like the ones where like the map doesn't go there yet. Hmm. I think that would just be awesome. I think it would suit her character. I think it would suit Maisie Williams. And I just think it would be really cool. Um, but of course, that's, you know, after the end of the series. Yeah, but wouldn't it be funny if it turns yeah. out at the end, it's like, and, and the whole world was destroyed and everything, everybody died. Yeah, then there's no sea to, to sail across. <laughs> yeah, then we're done. No, there's a put an end to all of this language invention. Yeah. The, that K sound will will, nope. all, will never evolve. Never so uh, I, I will say that I was, um, I mean, now I think it's probably, it probably doesn't matter if, you know, talking about it, but I was approached about the, uh, the prequel that was set in Old Valyria. Mm. I was very excited about that because, you know, I liked the idea of expanding Val- Valyrian and also learning a lot more about the culture and being able to expand the language that way. Uh, but that, uh, that prequel died, which is too bad. Are you um, excited about the stuff that you did see about it, though? Uh, oh yeah, no. I mean, it was, it, it was it was everything I wanted because we get so much culture with the Dothraki, um, just because we see them a lot and it's it's in the books and it's canon that it's it's easy to expand that language because I know the culture, but so hard with Valyrian, it's just so hard. I mean, I, we don't know a lot about the culture. We don't we? There's a lot of suggestions. There's a lot of anecdotes. There's a lot of you know snippets of histories or people who said, "Well, I heard that," and so on. We don't actually see it uh, with something that uh, like a prequel series set in Valeria that actually had George R. R. Martin's imprimatur. I mean, that would be you know that would be canon enough that I could actually say, "Oh, this is what their culture is like," and I can start expanding the language in this way. So I was excited for it for that reason, and it's too bad that it just isn't going to go forward. No, yeah, who knows why? Anyway, so if if there are other prequels, though, I, I probably can't talk about them. Support for today's show comes from Postmates, your personal food delivery, grocery delivery, whatever you can think of delivery service. No more trips to the store. Postmates will deliver anything to you within the hour. You don't even have to leave your house or your apartment. 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. Even on Sunday night when everyone else is watching Game of Thrones, someone's missing out on Game of Thrones for you. The sacrifice. Just download the app for iOS or Android for free. Browse local restaurants and businesses and track your delivery. Anything you're craving, Postmates can deliver. Postmates is the largest on-demand network in the known universe with more than 25,000 partner merchants. I remember Postmates was delivering Taco Bell before anyone else was delivering Taco Bell. And that's how my relationship with them started. (laughs) A beautiful love story began. (laughs) (laughs) For a limited time, Postmates is giving our listeners $100 of free delivery credit for your first seven days. 
$100 of free delivery credit for your first seven days. To start your free deliveries, download the app right now and use code OWNS. That's code O-W-N-S for $100 of free delivery credit for your first seven days when you download the Postmates app. Get anything you need, anytime you need it. Download Postmates and save with code OWNS. <laughs> Just a blanket. I probably can't talk about them. <laughs> what what are you in, in New York City promoting on this trip? Uh, well, um, mainly I was here to uh, promote the Duolingo course. So I created the Duolingo course for High Valyrian. I've recently expanded it. So there's uh, there's some more skills in there. And, uh, and I've added audio to the course. So you can actually hear me uh, speaking all of the various sentences of Valyrian. And so, yeah, Duolingo brought me out here to talk about it, do a bunch of interviews and stuff. And uh, and I want to use that opportunity to come on my favorite podcast. <laughs> Yay. We're going to have uh, some Shake Shack tomorrow. That's in the cards. That's right. So you that's need to tell else. everybody about this. This is a cool thing. Yeah, I want to ask you about, I mean, you're already going to talk about it, but I'm just <laughs> yeah. curious on your thoughts for people who don't know about the menus and all that stuff that you've done shake shack in particular yeah so i thought that was cool uh shake shack uh, approached uh, hbo so this was all through hbo about uh, putting together a secret menu with some secret menu items that were never did this for true blood sorry i just want to talk some shit (laughs) (laughs) so like you know some valerian themed items and they thought it would be cool if like you know you had to order in high valerian i'm you know i'm sure that the people that actually work there they'll probably be a little bit more lenient but um, (laughs) just point at the menu (laughs) yeah but uh so yeah they had me translate a whole bunch of stuff do some audio and uh and so now there's a, a little secret menu uh, that you can only access with High Valyrian. I think that's cool. That's so cool. Are you going to roll up tomorrow fun. just like <laughs> High Valyrian for, in there. sentences on sentences <laughs> just like to sh- show off a little bit? Yeah, that's that's <laughs> kind of the goal. I want to, because I mean, I'm sure that this, the servers are prepared oh, yeah. to an extent for <laughs> yeah. some High Valyrian. I, I, want to, I want to give them so much that it makes them go, I feel like I hate Game of Thrones. <laughs> yeah. Game of Thrones over yet. Can you believe it's the final season, man? Yeah, I know. Isn't that final season? Isn't that a thing? No more. Uh, it's just that's it. There's no like. There's not going to be another lead up. Like we've talked about, there are going to be prequels, mm. or at least we we call them spinoffs, but prequels. We hope that they go ahead. I personally like that Maisie Williams adventure idea. That's pretty good. So do I. Maybe if Sandra Clegane survives, they just go together and we, we get more season four, season three. Uh, Quentin good. Tarantino mm-hmm. works on it. That'd be good. That'd bringing be good. it full circle. Oh, the last season. I'll, I'll tell you this because um, when uh, when I was, like I said, when I got the, the notification that I won the competition for Dothraki, that was October 30th, but it was October 30th, 2009, right? So uh, I, we were working on the show for like two years before it actually uh, debuted. And so this year, 2019, October 30th, that's going to be 10 years. 10 years. 10 years. How much wow. has your life changed since you won that contest? Yeah, completely. You know that before that, so uh, for two years, I was teaching uh, community college English. Um, that's a very recognizable language. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, and of course, it was just freshman composition. But that was, uh, I mean, I because mean, I, I, I think I need to back up for you to appreciate this. I entered college as an English major with one goal. I was going to get a degree in English 
I was going to teach high school English, and then I was going to write fiction during the summer. Oh, right on. Because that's all I cared about at the time was writing fiction. That was, that was what I did. And uh, I, you know, I discovered uh, linguistics, like my third semester. I was like, this is awesome. I added linguistics as my fun major. I started creating languages the same year, wow. right? And so I started, you know, with linguistics and creating languages and everything. It was always just something I did for fun. Uh, I was still an English major. I still have my plan on my in my second to last semester. I found a program at UC Irvine where you could get your master's degree, your credential, and your BCLAD certification, which was bilingual ed, in two years, and do your student teaching. It was like the perfect. It was the dream, uh, you know, program for me. And because it, it was UC Irvine, I'm from Orange County. Because that was the other thing. I just had my first sibling ever. Wow. At 20 years old, wow. my mother had uh, my little sister. You're like, I got to get my life together. I just got my first sibling. I know. And so <laughs> I wanted to go back home so that I could watch her grow up. Wow, I didn't dude. want to be away. And then That's that nice. year, I met somebody. That semester, I met somebody. In our linguistics club, I met uh, I met Aaron. And, you know, it was it was like, honestly, it was just like a week, maybe less. I said to myself, this relationship has a chance to be the one. And so I was, you know, kind of, you know, we were just at the beginning of the relationship, but it was also that second to last semester is an important one in college because you really need to decide what you're doing because there are deadlines at the end of the year, including graduate school deadlines. And so she asked me one day, what uh, graduate schools are you applying to? And she meant what linguistics programs was I applying to? Not only had I never looked into this at all and had no plans to do this, uh, I was not interested in doing it at all. I was never interested in going to linguistics graduate. She knew that you loved it so much. She was like, hey. So I replied to her, oh, a bunch. Which ones are you applying to? (laughs) Smooth. (laughs) And so um, I said to her, like, you know, I want to go back to Southern California. And this is why, you know, for my little sister. And so we were, uh, as we were looking at graduate schools to apply to, I applied, uh, she, she was applying to San Diego, Santa Barbara, University of Chicago, and Rice. And I was like, God, I hope she doesn't get into those. Um, and so uh, I was like, well, I'm applying to UC San Diego and UC Santa Barbara because they're going to be close. Um, I mean, I, I could have applied to UCLA, but I have some respect. Oh, <laughs> oh that's harsh. No. That's harsh, man. <laughs> no, I'm like, isn't that where Brock Mansion played? Yeah, no, that was Cal. <laughs> but uh, no, similar U- colors. UCLA is, is not philosophically aligned <laughs> with the kind of linguistics education we got at Berkeley, or at least it wasn't at the time. So I was like, all right, I'm going to apply to San Diego and Santa Barbara. They're close enough to Orange County that I can drive back. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so uh, we started getting acceptance in. She didn't get into rice. And I was like, oh, that sucks. Oh, I'm so sorry. She got what I call a non-vite to the University of Chicago, which was like, uh, they accepted her and said, yeah, you can come. Uh, We can't offer you any money, but come. So it's like, okay, so like $50,000 a year? They're like, you bet, come. We'd love for you to come. It's like, okay, yeah, thanks. Um, And then- we both got into UC San Diego and she didn't get into Santa Barbara. Those fools. And Santa Barbara offered me a bunch of money. They clearly didn't know what I cared about. <laughs> and so we both went to UC San Diego, right? And so we're going there. And this entire time I'm like, oh yeah, I'm gung-ho linguistics. Totally love being here. And then uh, she came to a crisis point in her life where she kind of looked at what her future was going to be like 
in academic linguistics. And she was like, I don't want this for my life. Like, even if I finish a PhD and get the professorship I want, I don't want this life. And she was kind of hesitant about telling me about this because like, you know, she was, she knew me as Dave linguistics as the guy that that's all he cared about. And, um, and that was, and she tells me finally, and I say, Oh, great. Let's get out of here. <laughs> She's like, what? I'm like, yeah, I don't want to be here. So, <laughs> you want to know why I was here? Let's not get into yeah. that. <laughs> anyway. So we both got our master's degrees and with a master's degree in linguistics, and a bachelor's degree in English, you can teach community college English. Oh, wow. And so that was what I did. I said about right there, I started applying to community colleges. I applied to them back in Orange County because that was where I wanted to be. I, uh, the, uh, the, the good people at Fullerton College decided to hire me. We moved up. I taught for two years. It was a nightmare because <laughs> the way I teach writing is I just give the kids a bunch of writing. And I spend a bunch of time giving them feedback because that's how you improve your writing. And that's what I wanted to do. I totally got burnt out after two years and I did nothing afterwards. I did nothing. So for this is like uh, the end of 2008, beginning of 2009, I didn't have a job. Erin was supporting me with her job, which was she was not making a lot of money. Neither was I. I was making $18,000 a year, um, wow. which wasn't a lot even back then. Uh, and so I, I was writing a novel. I finished it. Um, I showed it to a good friend of mine. And I think we both kind of decided, you know what? No, it's not good enough. Hmm. It's not good enough. And so I just kind of sat there wondering, what the hell am I going to do? And that was July 2009 when the first email from Game of Thrones came around. Wow. So, Yeah. Where my life would be now had Game of Thrones not came along, I have no idea. Wow. I didn't have a plan. I didn't know what I was going to do next. Like, I had nothing. And so that's why when this competition came along, where uh, the guy who designed the competition, Sai, bless his heart, uh, gave us absolutely no limit on the amount of material we could provide, that is why I put every single waking minute and hour into my Dothraki application. That's why I put together 300 pages of material wow. in like a month uh, for this because I was like, this is it. This is my shot. And I've got nothing else going on right now and nothing in my future. And I have no idea what I'm going to do. I need this. And so I just blew the doors off that competition. And my apologies to everybody else who applied. <laughs> you were not getting that job. <laughs> <laughs> you had nothing to ten lose. Ten years. <laughs> yeah. Ten years ago, man. Yeah. Ten years later. That's yeah. wild. So these past ten years have flown by then, right? <sighs> kind of. Some went quicker, some went slower. <laughs> like, let me tell you, 2010, that was a slow year. <laughs> Why was what's so slow about it? <laughs> because I was like, you know, I was working on Game of Thrones, but still like couldn't really tell anybody. Right. I guess okay. I guess in April, in April, HBO kindly allowed us to write our own press release, which they released. And that was delightful. Um, Jeez. Yeah. Talk about sparing the budget. You wrote your own press release. uh, Well, look, they didn't have to do anything. Right. They didn't have to announce anything. Most shows I work on don't. They don't even mention that I'm working on them. Uh, So first, that they were going to do a press release at all was great. And second, that we had control over the content was even better. 
So no, like that, I mean, I'm serious about it. They, they very kindly did that. I thought that was great. They didn't have to do that. Um, but like, yeah, up to then I couldn't tell anybody except my wife. Um, and then after that, it was like, nobody really knew what the show was going to be. Most people hadn't heard of a song of ice and fire, right. Unless they were fantasy fans already. Um, and then like the uh, reaction from the song of ice and fire community was kind of amusing because they were like, uh, Oh, they're doing Dothraki. Oh, I guess I, yeah, I guess you'd have to. And it's like, I wonder if they're going to do the Valyrian language. That was what most people were. If they were excited about anything, they were excited about the prospect of Valyrian. I was like, oh, okay. So since the very beginning, you've been intimidated by the audience. They, yeah. They've been there. Oh man. Well, uh, you've been work. You've worked on a bunch of other stuff. I know our, our turned on our last episode before you came over today mm. that we did with you. Um, oh, yeah. And I was listening back, and we had this like Daenerys Targaryen style intro for you. We were reading off all of this stuff. We may we may put <laughs> off something like that. Oh, sorry, strike. Jeez. Got choked on something. Uh, we might put some, something like that at the top of the episode uh, again, uh, just to illustrate how much stuff you've worked on since then. Yeah. Obviously, these past ten years have been, like you said, different and busy. Um, can we talk about your most recent project, the thing that you're working on right now that you just looked at in the bookshelf when we started oh, yeah. talking about? Well, uh, we can't really talk about it, but I can. I can tell you that I'm working on the new Dune film. Dune. <laughs> pretty cool so exciting yeah that's that's gonna be fun uh i'm pleased with the type of things i was able to do for that so um there will be some spoken language in it there will also be some manual language in it which i'm very excited about sign manual language. sign language oh. and Whoa. i also am getting to do a writing system thank goodness not all the writing systems which i should be doing but at least one wow <laughs> Yeah. And you're like, let me just take another fictional universe, except this one, or and, and make myself a part of it, or make my my soul a part of it. But this one, you personally, this is something that you read when you were a kid. Yeah, I read it in high school. I read the the first Dune book in high school. Uh, I read it because um, I saw that my stepdad had it. And I, it's always like that, right? It, like yeah. someone you think is sort of interesting has this book and you're like, what is that book that you have? Yeah. And something that was just so intriguing was just that the cover, two things. It's just a very simple word. Like it's just a word, dune, a single monosyllabic word. It's, it's quite evocative, you know? And second, and this is true, like if you go around and look at um, any copy of Dune, the cover, they do some really interesting things with the typography for how they write Dune and Frank Herbert. It's just, I don't know, it's really kind of different. Like, you know, they have these kind of like wavy lines. I don't know, it reminds me of the 1970s. It reminds me of these very specific pictures of camels that I saw in my grandfather's house of camels walking in the desert, minimally colored, kind of like browns on canvas. Uh, browns and orange and it reminded me of that and so like i don't know i just found it very intriguing and so then i read the book how much does that affect what you're working on now like all that coloring i will tell you this it definitely affected the writing system i had basically i tried to create a writing system that was evocative of the type of typography i saw on the covers of dune so i hope i succeeded i hope people are going to like it because I think I did a pretty kick-ass job on it. That's awesome. How long did it take you to work on all that? Uh, oh, uh, we've been working on this for, what month is this? 
This is a good question. Hannah, what month is it? It's April. April. Sunday. Oh, right. Yeah. April. <laughs> <laughs> Sunday, April 14th, man. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and then, uh, yeah. So then um, probably about six months, maybe a little bit longer. Uh, that's how long I've been working on it. Yeah. Hey, I've got other shows coming out this month too, don't I? Season six of The uh, 100 is coming April 30th. And then another show, I which I still... When I try to be safe, I just don't talk about it until it airs. But a new show on Netflix coming April 23rd. I think it's April 23rd. You can't say anything about that one? No, not, not that but one. But it's like a – so you can't say it's like the genre or anything? It's sci-fi. Sci-fi? Yeah, it, it's sci-fi and it's it's been announced. It's just that my involvement on it has not been announced. So, you know, I always try to be safe rather than sorry. Sure. Yeah. Do you need to – Yeah, it's about to get done saving that I'm going to turn you back on. Okay. Uh, well, I was wondering if we should do some questions from listeners. Oh yeah, we should. Depending do that. on how much yeah. time we have. We we look. We got we got time. If, we got time. Uh, if you um if you find that the episode is running a little long, just uh just cut out a lot of the crap I said about Game of Thrones. No. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it's running long at all. I just want to make sure you've got. Oh yeah, I just uh, need, we've got enough. I just time. need to be somewhere by seven p.m. So I'm okay. It's five forty-six, listeners. <laughs> <laughs> East Coast. East Coast represent. <laughs> We're trying to get sponsored by Diet Coke. Yeah, I, I, I am. Too. Uh, so oh, really? I'm not, I'm not trying very hard, but. Yeah, us either. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, we haven't done anything except try to wish it into existence. And yeah. Said that they sponsored us. So we're kind of like on the same page. Pretty right? much. Except I also haven't gone to. Yeah, that's. that's, see, that's oh, there we go. I haven't gone to the trouble of actually even asking for Diet Coke. Like, even just when nobody's listening. Like, I've done nothing. I've done nothing. I'm just hoping it's going to happen. We have a new show might that be, you might is going to be sponsored by Diet Coke, so we don't want to get sponsorship on this one. If it if it helps, I don't drink Diet Coke. I mean, I think that's going to help. I think the listeners want to know what you do drink. I'll tell you what I drink. I drink water. <laughs> I drink Gatorade. Uh, I love fruit juices. What kind of Gatorade? Do you like sugary drinks? I do. Uh, uh, my favorite Gatorade has got to be uh, the purple one. Okay. Ooh, fierce grape. Yeah. That, oh God, yes. That's, that's a good one. Oh. I love that one. Uh, and I, but I, I have strong memories associated with orange Gatorade because that's the one I used to drink when I played basketball. So every time I taste it, it's just all those memories come back. Orange Gatorade. Yeah. I think that those common flavors are often slept on. Like, have you tried lemon lime lately? Like the the oh. yellow one. Are they different? So, what I mean is, like, people don't really talk about them. Oh, like, they're slept the, on. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. No, I understand. It's yeah. slang terminology. No, I got you. <laughs> but yeah, so that was that was back from the days when there was only orange, yellow, and red, right? Wow. And, yeah. So that punch is the red. Yeah. So uh, yeah, fruit punch was in the a red. glass bottle. Mm. <laughs> so yeah, so yeah, I always had orange Gatorade when I played basketball, and so now I I taste it and I think of the hardwood. Oh, oh so. right on. God, it's, yeah. sometimes it's good to play basketball. You can go hard in the paint. Mm. I was a, I was a streaky shooter. Really, I, I would I would shoot threes and drive, and I would get fouls. Oh, I loved it. Aggressive. Oh yeah. Oh, I would jump straight into the big guys. I had a trick. I had a trick, and this is uh, it always worked. It never failed to work. So it's like I jump in right to to go get a layup. I get some contact. Nothing happens. I go ah. <laughs> Whistle immediately. Jeez. Immediately. Classic. <laughs> never she didn't failed. have the fall though, you know. Oh no, I never did. I never went to That's that. That's smart. Though, I never went man. to that. But yeah, no, you just just yell out. I bet your coach loved you. Drawing yeah. them fouls. How oh, was your yeah. free throw shooting? My free throw shooting was pretty good. In fact, I once uh won a game against our in kind of 
next city rivals when I was in high school. Tustin. We were uh, Cyprus. <laughs> oh, Cyprus. Tustin's cool. Cyprus. Fuck those dudes. Anyway. Okay, go. So yeah, we were down. We were down by one point. We were down by one point, and I don't think it was a shooting foul. I think it was just they were in the penalty, and the ball came to me, and they just happened to foul me uh, because on a drive. Um, I don't think I had gotten a shot off yet. Anyway, so yeah, we're down by one point, and there is like 1.4 seconds left. Oh, John, this is and so like like my too much. my uh, I remember one of my teammates comes up to me. He says, "He's like." You could do this, man. But the way he said it was like, you can, you can do this, man. Like, <laughs> like, he was shaking in his boots. I'm like, you're not shooting the free throws. <laughs> I said, like, don't worry about it. So I get the ball, put up the first one real quick. I make it. And it's like, all right, doesn't matter what happens now because we're tied. Make the second one. They get the ball out of bounds, like 1.4 seconds. They try to throw up a desperation shot doesn't come close and we win the game wow i should have opened up this podcast hannah we should have asked him what it's I like know. to be a hero i know at the very beginning <laughs> what was that what did that feel like <laughs> oh that was good i I've it's had, appropriate for the evening so i've had good and bad ones at the buzzer so that was a good one i've also hit a three-pointer uh at the buzzer uh but it was we were down by four it was type of thing where it's like I had the ball. Two guys came at me. I actually ah! kind of weaved in between them, shot it, made the shot. No foul. You know, no foul. And then the time runs out. And I was like, ah, oh, wow. <laughs> you lose by one. It was like it was such an interesting feeling because it was like I wanted desperately to make that shot. And I made it. But I really needed to draw contact. Enough. Otherwise, you know, that, that was it. And so it was like. I was just, I was just kind of like, I hit the shot and then I was disappointed. <laughs> what more do you want from me? But it's like, you know, people came out and was like, hey man, you made it. That's cool. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> but you know. Uh, anyway. Listener questions. Do you want to play basketball after this? Yeah. Cool. The first one comes from Secrets of Dune on Twitter, who says, words like Khaleesi have an Arabic vibe. I'd love to know more about your relationship with Arabic and how it affected your language creation for Game of Thrones. All right. So obviously, of course, a word like Khaleesi is it comes from George R. R. Martin. Furthermore, uh, the word Kal, uh, it may have an Arabic vibe, quote unquote, but it obviously does not come from Arabic. In fact, it comes from, you know, Khan and uh, and the Kagan. Uh, so Mongolian um, and the uh, what, what are those? What's the name of that tribe? You Which know, tribe? you know, that, that tribe of people, they were a big deal. They were approached by the Arabs. They were approached by the Jews and they were approached by the Christians to adopt one of their three religions. The Khazars. That's it. The Khazars. I kn- I'm pretty sure that that's where um, that's where George R. R. Martin got his inspiration for the word called from. Are they because, people as well? Uh, uh, yes. And so like there's the Khaganate of the Khazars and, and their leader was called the Kagan. And, um, and I'm pretty sure that's where he got called from. Um, but anyway, so aside from the words that, uh, George R. R. Martin created, um, obviously when I was creating the language, I took every single word that he had, he had found that he had created himself and I analyzed the sound pattern of it and I figured, okay, this is probably what he was trying to do. And so from that point, I could do other things. I mean, I really did try to copy the sound patterns. So mm-hmm. it was like when it came to syllable structure, I, I, uh, like he had a bunch of words that would have this syllable structure. Then I created a bunch more words that had exactly that syllable structure, just with different sounds. That was the goal. 
and so um, anyway, once I had collected like all of the sounds and saw where there were gaps or anything, I really did very little to uh, George R. R. Martin's sound system aside from determining how things should be pronounced if they had, you know, different possibilities given the spellings. Um, the only thing I did was I added the ch sound, ch, uh, which is a very non-Arabic sound. Um, for myself, I studied Arabic for a year. That was the first language I studied when I got to Berkeley. And I studied it because I found the writing system unbelievably beautiful. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to learn that language. And then I learned the language and honestly, it changed my life. Um, I had never, ever seen or even imagined that a language could work the way that Arabic did with its, um, with its triconsonantal root system. Um, uh, Dothraki doesn't have anything grammatically similar to that, but my first language did. My first language just basically copied Arabic as much as it could because I loved it so much. Um, so when it came to the sound of Dothraki, there were very few things that, I mean, I kind of describe it as a mixture of Dothraki and Spanish. I'm sorry, a mixture of Arabic and Spanish mm -hmm. in terms of pronunciation. And the reason why I say that is this. All of the coronal sounds, or at least all of the coronal stops, I gave a dental articulation. And this is exactly what that means. So if you have something that's spelled with a T or a D, right? In English, let's, uh, taco is actually a good example. In English, aside from the aspiration, we'll say taco. Even if you remove the aspiration, it's taco, right? Taco. Taco. Okay. In Spanish, Spanish doesn't have aspiration, but it also has a dental place of articulation. So it's not pronounced taco, it's pronounced taco with the tongue tip, uh, the tongue tip at the teeth. And it makes the A so, more apt. Taco. No, no, no. I mean, that. well, maybe a little bit. No, that's just the correct pronunciation of the A, but it's it's the T. So it does that with a T and the T. So taco, diente, um, you know, esperamente, and so on. So if you ever have people where it's like, I thought my Spanish accent was pretty good. How are they picking me out as a non-native speaker? It's because of the articulation of the T and the D. So I did that with Dothraki, and I spread it also to the N and the L. So the proper pronunciation of N and L in Dothraki is at the teeth. Um, this was done, it was partially inspired by Spanish, but it was also partially inspired by the fact that it has a TH sound, the TH in Dothraki, which just is a nightmare. <laughs> it's a very rare sound in the world's languages, mm. and yet it shows up in every fantasy language. And so I was <laughs> like, how do I license this? And so my idea was to give us this dental series with T, D, N, and L, and I was saying, all right, this sound in the old version of Dothraki, which I call protoplanes, will be a lateral fricative with a dental articulation. So, la, la. So, the oldest version would be like, dothlaki, dothlaki. Um, and then I was saying, like, because of the dental place of articulation, the la sound shifted to a th sound. And that's how you got that th sound and only the th sound. Hmm. So... That was basically what licensed it. So that's kind of like the Spanish half. And also I saw that there were a bunch of consecutive vowels next to each other, which is something I loved about Spanish. In Spanish, you have words like creer and almohada, where you have two vowels coming next to each other and nothing in between. You can just go from one vowel to another, even if it's the same vowel. I thought that was so cool. And so I did that with Dothraki too and featured it prominently. That's why with the two case endings, you like hear like the very first thing that's said of Dothraki is achomar chomakaan. 
like that, where you have two A's next to each other. I thought it was a gorgeous sound. The last word. Yeah. Yeah. Chomacan. Yeah. So that was from Spanish. And then from uh, Arabic, uh, post-vocalic H, the pronunciation I gave is very pharyngeal. So it sounds like um, there are two different H's in Arabic. It's not the one that looks like a tam or buta without the two dots over it. It's the other one that looks like a jim with no dot. So, uh, so that's why it's like mahraj, mahraj. It's a very pharyngeal H. So I like that pronunciation. We have the ka in there as well. That was already in there. That was George R. R. Martin's. I didn't add anything to it. And then um, aside from that, I mean, just a lot of the sounds, I guess, that are in there are also found in Arabic. Like the th is in there, and then the um, the the j is in there, depending on your pronunciation. Um, and so it just kind of lends itself to like almost being a bizarre phonological mixture of Spanish and Arabic. That is, if you can pronounce both of those languages perfectly, all those languages perfectly, you should be able to pronounce Dothraki perfectly. That sounds really hard. Huh. Well, <laughs> Difficult thing to pull off. Do you know of anyone that can speak Dothraki pretty well, like with you, that could keep up with you at it? No, because I got pretty good at Dothraki. Uh, there was uh, a couple of guys from Finland, uh, Kvak from Finland. He's good. He's good. I don't know if he's kept up with it, but at least in the beginning, Kvak uh, was really good. That'd be a crazy thing. <laughs> have you, uh, we'll get back to listener questions. I was just curious when you were saying that. Have you done anything specific to the language that? you feel the a particular performer that's doing your lines regularly, someone like Amelia expresses it in an interesting way. Maybe you like pushed it in that direction or anything. Has it uh, stayed? For, for Dothraki specifically? Sure. Yeah. Or maybe well, even High Valyrian in the series. Well, I will tell you that for Dothraki specifically, something interesting that happened uh, in terms of pronunciation was actually Jason Momoa. He, um, he employs the sound change regularly that I call the, the rock and roll baby sound change. <laughs> okay. Which is that anytime you hear like in real rock and roll, hear him say baby, they don't say baby. They say baby. <laughs> baby. <laughs> yes. And so like <laughs> there's this line from, I'm pretty sure it's episode three of Game of Thrones where uh, da- Daenerys actually demonstrates some of her um, incorrect Dothraki because she's still learning. So she makes some grammatical errors that were intentional. And then Jason Momoa says, Kifino uh, si yer nesi. That's what he is, that's what's written there. Kifino si yer nesi. And the way he pronounces it is, Kifino si yer nesi. Kifino si. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's like, it's, it, it, he did it consistently throughout the entire, uh, well, first two seasons, I guess, is where he was on. Anytime a word. This is the first season, remember? He died. No, but he he appears, remember? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, My bad, my bad. All right, so anytime a word (laughs) ends with an E sound, he reduces it to A. And I just thought that was the coolest thing Hmm. because, like, it's consistent, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And it's and it makes sense. It's something How does that it make happens. Sense? Just like the way that it moved, the language moved, or the way he no. particularly his character wanted to say it. Yeah, or? just the way his character is doing it. It's something that's believable that happens in a lot of languages, hmm. you know. And so it's like anytime you have a little change like that, it's something that can be noticed by people and something that can be associated with a particular trait. Hmm. 
Hmm. Uh, and so it just does, it, it's random, like what it will mean. Like, you know, you, it could be that somebody does that and they associate it with being stupid or being lazy. In this case, it's being associated with being badass. And I think it's awesome. Next question. We've got Crow, Crow Foods Daughter. I don't know if you have these in front of you, David. It might be more helpful because this one's a little bit more complicated. Crow Foods Daughter says, I think the Dothraki culture and their customs incredibly, or I find the Dothraki culture and their customs incredibly interesting. Someone once pointed out some unusual translation choices for the following Dothraki terms. Then they list a couple out and they ask, can you walk us through your rationale for the wood theme and dreaming? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. No, I know what she means. I don't even need to look it up. I know what she means. So um, there was, uh, how did it start? Um, I think I just, I think this was for, actually, I created this for my initial uh, application for Dothraki. I think that's what I did. Because um, I was just kind of, I was trying to come up with phrases. Um Anyway, so somehow I needed dream, I think. Uh, I think that was how it started. I needed dream. And I was like, uh, so dream is something that is um, anytime, like if you're creating a language and you come across a word for dream, it's like, okay, I need to think about how I'm going to create this oh, word. Oh, because so it's not, such an important word. Well, also just because it's, it's abstract. Mm. So something like rock, you don't need to spend too much time thinking sure. about how rock is going to be. You know, it's, it's, it's not going to be common that a language is going to innovate some crazy strategy for something like rock. But for something like dream, that's going to need some explanation. Meaning and yeah. cultural significance. So what I did was I went back and I was like, okay, let's think about how I want to do this. And then I came up with an idea. And so then I went back and created the words I needed to create in order to create that. And the first thing is that metal uh, and Dothraki. So the idea is that of course there's metal and there's wood. The Dothraki have metal weapons. Um, and so the idea that I came up with is that for, you know, young children, I think it's probably I, what I hypothesize is that it would be a real um, kind of coming to coming of age moment when you get a metal sword or a metal knife for the first time. That age is probably younger than we would imagine. But I mean, still, it's going to be at some point in time, oh, you are now able to wield a metal weapon. So before that, I reasoned that kids would probably be playing around with wood ones because, of course, they would. I mean, they're kids, you know. And so that gave me my idea for using the word fake. So in other words, um, that's where I got my words for real and fake. Every, every language is going to have words for those. And I thought, well, this would be a nice extension. That is, metal is real because that's, the, that's what weapons are. Real weapons are made out of metal. And then wood is fake because uh, fake weapons are made out of wood, things that you wouldn't use in combat. And so then that just got extended. So the adjective associated with metal also means real or legitimate. And the adjective associated with wood uh, means fake or artificial mm. or mm -hmm. toy, depending on the context, right? Um, and so then that allowed me to move on to my idea for dream. My idea was that like with dreaming... I mean, everybody has the experience of dreaming. And for me, one of the most disorienting things about a dream is that while you are dreaming, you basically have no memory of your real life. And it feels like it's not like, oh, wow, this seems so real. It is real. It is real when you're there. That is your entire life right there. And so obviously, when you wake up, you know the difference. And so my idea was, ah, then let's do it this way. Let's say that a dream 
is a fake life. That's the word for a dream. So that, I used the word fake and combined it with a word for life. So athirado, uh, and that means a fake life. And that's the word for dream. And then to dream, the verb, it no longer makes sense to just use that noun that way. Uh, you use the verb that would be associated with that noun. That is, if the noun is a, a, a fake life, then the verb should be to live. And so when you say, I had a dream, you say, I lived a wooden life. Mm. And that's how it came about. Yeah. That's very and cool. And there's so much meaning attached to that. that. That's something as an author that you would create to say something about an experience that your character lived through to give us an impression about what will inform some of their choices moving forward. But what you did was you engineered that same sort of meaning, that same sort of myth about that character, but using third-party information sort of. Yeah. It was specifically to create that word, but it tells the story of what the person is going through. See, and that's the whole thing mm. about creating a language. Mm. So there's there's many different parts to it. So it's like the grammar is its own part, right? But when it comes to creating words, that's what you're doing. You're telling thousands of stories for thousands of people. And it's like anybody can innovate some you know, new uh, pattern, right? Even in our own language, anybody can innovate anything at any time. The ones that stick around are the ones that people like. And so that's, that tells you a story about that culture, which idioms that somebody coined on the spur of the moment, which ones they fastened on to. You know, like uh, there's a it's kind of a, a little bit of a tangent but when it comes to the language creation community. There's kind of a divide between those that uh, hate coining words and those who love it. And usually those who hate it have a really hard time with it. And those who love it have a really easy time with it. I've always been of the latter camp. And I've been trying to figure out how to bridge this gap because there's a lot of language creators who come up with really cool grammatical systems and phonological systems. And then when it comes to coining a single word, they're like, I don't know what to do. <laughs> and it's like, I'm saying, I don't know what to tell you. Like, it's not only not hard, but I can't imagine not having, you know, that uh, ability or desire or drive. It's like, that's the fun part, you know? You get to sit down and you get to do this. You get to tell these stories, thousands of these stories, miniature little stories about where these things came from. Like just thinking about animal names. Look around at animal names. We got really weird animal names like that just come out of nowhere. Butterfly. Come on. <laughs> That's a story. Wow. Right. Yeah. You know what I mean? And yes. you get to do that yeah. as the language creator. So it's just it's one of my great loves. It's one of the things I love doing. Uh, as a language creator. And so like, I can't imagine not being able to do that or not liking it. You know what I mean? Do you think it might be because all the work put into building a system might be dismantled by the sort of coining of our word? Like you, maybe it doesn't work in the system that they've made. So they're just protecting their work and what they already know. It is. It's a good theory. Usually though, um, the lexicon is really quite separate uh as an entity so i don't think that would usually be the case i think for them it's like getting bogged down by the idea of it's really just the the same the same thing that happens to writers or people who want to write and sit down at a blank page and don't know what to say um options overwhelm yeah and it's like they they also feel like there's choices that like if I choose this set of sounds for this word, it's supposed to mean something. It's like, ah, oh, not necessarily. Taking it too seriously at that point, yeah. right? Yeah. It's like as long as it fits the phonological mm. pattern, it's licit. And if it's licit, 
then it's something that could sound very good to your speakers, whether it sounds good to you or not. It's like, you're not one of your speakers. So their opinion is more important than yours. You just got to go with it. This truth is like a is like a intrinsic truth in so many things, especially forms of, in this case, not only artistic expression, but of uh, something that is logical and laid out almost like in mathematics, yeah, almost like mathematics in a way. But I feel like uh, you're you're obviously ahead of your time bringing this level this this perspective on that thing on this language creation like field, and. Uh, uh, I feel like everything is going to get eventually touched by this, by mm. this perspective, by this new uh, intelligence that we're all carrying forward into the things that we do in our lives. And uh, it's really cool to see that happening live and to see it happening live in association with all these major properties, things like World of Warcraft and obviously mm. Game of Thrones and now Dune, all these other, all these projects that you've worked on and you've been able to, uh, like I said, it's developing live. Like it's an, it's a way that this art form, it's a way that this, this, in this case, it's a, it's a way to help build out a, a TV show or a movie to make it more full and to express it in a complete way. Like an author like George R. R. Martin does his books, which makes them good in the first place. It's cool to see, it happening and growing mid process from when you started and to be here now. And it's so fascinating to, to know that the people that you've been inspiring and uh, who will eventually find your work that aren't around now in a handful of years, like it's cool to think about how badass and put together and true in this weird way where all the details and the stories are in synchronous they, they all align up it's crazy to think how good stuff's going to be in a couple yeah. of decades when this becomes standard practice when writing a new novel like or making a new movie like with neil degrasse tyson always calling out people for having the the wrong stars in the sky yeah, yeah like yeah. In, yeah. like the major yeah. scene like titanic a movie with so yeah. much budget behind it we can't we can't think about what the night sky was doing in 1914 <laughs> you know what i mean like yeah, these yeah. details are be, are becoming so much more ubiquitous over time and uh it's just cool to know that places care about making it's part of what makes game of thrones and all these other things good it's all those details added up on top of each other and once you go inside of this little detail there's someone that's nested inside of it you like trying to make it as wide and as filled out as possible before it even gets there it's it's a really cool thing yeah i just hope that uh you know, one day in the future when there are people who like, you know, are doing everything I do just as a matter of course, and then doing stuff that's even better. I just hope they're kind to me. <laughs> oh, they will be. <laughs> that's the thing, man. They're going to be, they're gonna they're be, be so like, much, this dude doesn't so know shit. <laughs> they're going to be so much better. They're going to be so much better. And, and they're be like, you didn't even, <laughs> it's like, you didn't. You didn't. You didn't even. You didn't even fumble the gadget trap. You got paid for this like, all those years. <laughs> supported his family on this shit. <laughs> I tried my best, man. I that's tried my best. Crazy. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah, that's all right. I I wish I could be there though. I I, I wish I could be there. Just well, you will it. though. Your work will live on, and that's that's cool. Oh That'd yeah, cool. no, no. I just mean like I physically. Yeah, that. you're like I wish I could survive that long. Yeah, yeah. for everyone to get good at what they do, because right now it's not really the case. <laughs> well, they're, they're they're good, but it's just like they're not. Their work isn't being recognized. We're we're getting there. We're getting there. We're, we're getting, getting there. All right, but anyway, all right. Should we do one more? Let's do one oh, more. One question. more. Do as many as you can. I don't care. This is from Instagram. Mike Walsh on Instagram. Yeah. Mike Walsh on Instagram. Eighty-one. Mm -hmm. How do you say "oh shit" in Dothraki? 
Gadach. Gadach. There you go. <laughs> there you go. All also, right. real quick, Chase Smith says, no question, Important. just keep being awesome. Oh, thanks. Sorry, Anna. Next, we've got Robert E. Juliano, who says, one of the research topics that was important in the 1980s linguistics was the need to explain why young children never made certain grammatical mistakes in language production. This led to the hypothesis of the existence of a universal grammar hardwired in the human brain. This had implications on language learnability, for it is easier to account for the learnability of a given language if all possesses a universal grammar. Irrespective of whether a universal grammar exists, was language learnability a factor in the construction of Dothraki slash High Valyrian? So do we have another two hours? Yes! I thought we were like cracking into something right there as she read that. I was like, uh-oh. Oh Pandora's God. box. Yeah. <laughs> so universal grammar goes back to 1955, not the 1980s. Um, and it's... Uh, it's worth about as much now as it was then. Ooh. <laughs> not a lot. Not, not so, it, it's not intrinsic there is, then. There is so much. There is so much here. Okay, so first off, there was uh, one, of, one of the points that he made was about there are errors that children simply do not make. This is not true. Mm-hmm. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to demonstrate to you exactly how it is not true. There is one error that children are never supposed to make when they learn the English language. And that is contracting at the wrong place. So, for example, you can only you can't contract everywhere. Like, um, try me. Like, there's uh, you could say, for example, um, uh, yeah, there's uh, the the guy that you're looking for is around here, but I don't know where he's. Okay. Yeah, you can't do that. You can't do that. You have to say, I don't mm-hmm. know where he is. So. The uh, part of this theory, I mean, there are a few other of these, you know, errors that children supposedly never make. Um, this was one of them, was that children just don't do that. They always contract in the right place. They never contract in the wrong place. They do. They do. I've heard it. In fact, I've heard a child say, I don't know where he's. And I looked at her and I said, <laughs> you don't know where he is? And she said, I don't know where he is. I was like, well, there goes that. Um, (laughs) Reprogrammed. Well done, sir. (laughs) Yeah. So there are, um, there are a bunch of little things that they pointed out like that, where basically they said, if our theories are right, then children shouldn't do this. And luckily they don't, but they do, but they do, because that is something that it's possible to do. And the, the mm-hmm. way they frame it is like, it's something that, you know, some child could do, but since they never do, maybe there's some deeper structure here. But of course they do do that. Is it not also possible that that's a mistake that they're making? Just not simply. It is. Like they just made the contraction wrong, you know? That's the point. So that, that would discount the they're not possibility. To, they're not supposed to ever mm. make that mistake. They're not supposed to ever make that mistake because it's supposed to be deep structure embedded in there that prevents that type of a mistake from happening, from ever happening. Like a force of nature is what, is what some yeah, of them are saying? Basically, is that the grammar is embedded in their head and mm-hmm. they cannot ever make that mistake. And yet they do. So first of all, mm-hmm. so for every single one of those errors, uh, unless they were just like, like so ridiculous that it can't be analogized, which is important. Be analogized is important. Um, I would say 100% children do make those errors. And so I don't think those can be used as arguments at all. Second, the main okay. arguments of universal grammar are ridiculous. Um, 
that uh, the the fundamental the fundamental fact that universal grammar rests upon is that there is no possible way that a child can learn their language just from their environment. Hmm. Which should, at the outset, sound ridiculous, since all children do learn their language from their environment. But uh, the theory, the theory says that there are no negative examples. So children don't know that they can't do certain things, and therefore there must be universal grammar that they were already born with. I was like, wait, 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 wait! Didn't you skip over a ton of other possibilities there to yeah. jump straight to that one? That seems limiting. But this is the foundation upon which universal grammar rests. That is so uh, that is assumed so strongly that you can't it can't even be questioned. At this point, they kind of sound like flat earthers a little bit. It's it like, does. There's a better argument. There's a better way to say what you're trying to say, but you're not saying it. So, uh, so basically, the idea is that somewhere in our head, which we've never found, there is an actual like universal grammar or set of parameters that are the same in all human beings, and it's the reason that human beings can use language and no other uh, species can. Um, but where in the brain, we don't really know. They just said, well, because theoretically it must exist, we just don't know where it is yet. Hmm. It's like, okay, how about we go the other way around and we find a part in the brain where it is first and then make our theories based on that. But anyway, so this is uh, this is universal grammar. Today it is just assumed there's a, a branch of syntax that is based heavily on it. It's called generative, generative grammar, and it's gone through several different iterations. First it was... Uh, I don't know. First it was X bar, then it was government and binding, then it was principles and parameters, and now it's something called the minimalist program that basically assumes that somewhere in there is universal grammar and that all the languages that we speak are surface realizations of universal grammar. So it's the same language in everybody's heads, but um, they arrange their parameters differently, and so it comes out differently when we speak it. Um, That's fascinating. Yeah. Now, there's been, I would say... Uh, the majority of American syntacticians are fall in the generative generativist tradition, uh, and a large number of linguists do kind of fall into that camp. There are those that don't. Um, there are many that don't, uh, and especially outside of America, there are many that don't. Um, but uh, what's alarming is the way that uh, adherence to generative grammar is. It reminds me more of religion than it does science. Um, they really just believe in a lot of things that there is no direct evidence for while claiming that there is direct evidence for it. Um, but the evidence they provide is again, relies crucially on the interpretation and kind of this faith-based notion that, well, of course, language is innate. And uh, of course, you know, children can't learn everything just from their environment and so on and so forth. Um, anyway, my, the nice thing for me, is that since I'm outside of academic linguistics, um, I don't need to care about that anymore, <laughs> like at all. I don't need to care about that bullshit. What about the uh, learnability of the language? Yeah, so learnability. When it comes to learnability, um, uh, there Did was really the Dothraki language. Well, yeah, and and learn. Is is, is is this little boy going to come through in the recording? Yeah, is yeah. That okay, he could speak dog. Okay, good. There is. Um, there was really never any chance that I was going to approach anything that was not learnable because of the way I was making the language. Um, but it had nothing to do with me trying to do that. It, it came from the fact that 
I was creating it as a naturalistic language. That is, I was trying to create a language that, you know, aside from the fantasy vocabulary, if a linguist saw it, they would just believe that it was a language that they have they hadn't happened to have come across yet. You know, mm-hmm. um, that is, it could plausibly exist in our world. And the way that I do that is by taking the language, creating it at an older state and evolving it forwards. The further you evolve it, the more naturalistic it becomes, because that's basically the way that our languages are the way they are. They've just evolved over centuries. Uh, And so they develop the very specific quirks and idiosyncrasies that natural languages do. And so by emulating that evolutionary process, I can create something that is similarly naturalistic. So because of that, I was never, ever going to be breaching or broaching the uh, limits of learnability, like at all. It just wasn't something that was ever going to come into play. It's, it is possible and actually not too hard to create a language that humans can't learn and use on the fly. And many language creators have done it. I've just never had a call uh, like or a reason to really create such a language. But I'll give you a very small example of one uh, for, uh, created by Jeffrey Henning. Uh, it's called fifth. It's like fifth, but without the F. So F I T H. Um, and this language is based on last in first out grammar and uses a stack. So stack based, uh, stack based grammar. What does and that mean exactly? I don't exactly know. I tried to understand it at one point in time, but uh, it's something that anybody who's studied like computer science or anything. The clustering of words to make like bigger groups of code, basically. It's more like uh, there's a stack and it's like, imagine a bunch of playing cards and mm-hmm. it's like uh, only the top thing on the stack is active. And then you can have operators that do things like, you know, switch the top two cards on the stack. Or say like the 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 card that was just on the on the top of the stack is now negated or something like that. Interesting. Um, and so like uh, there is uh, as we've had discussions the language creation list. There's a shallow way to use this language so that it's human usable, but you cannot use the language to its fullest potential because humans just human brains just don't work that way. But like a computer could use it using all of the stack operators and using them to maximal effect. Uh, And so, uh, yeah, basically, Jeffrey Henning created this as kind of like a test case of a language that exceeds the capacity of human beings. And uh, many language creators have done it. They're called engelangers. It's just not something that uh, I would ever do for like, you know, a project like Game of Thrones because it would be inappropriate, right? These are just regular human beings I'm creating a language for. What would be the benefit of a language that is that advanced? I mean, in a way that we can't comprehend, is there more expression, more creativity that's perhaps like uh, able to be conveyed or is it just for fun? uh, When I saw it, now it's been a while since I really looked at it and tried to put a sentence in it. When I saw it, it allowed you to do certain things that are just cool. Like, like imagine this, imagine like how the stack works, right? And you could say something like, you know, I don't know, you know, I eat, and then on top of the stack is you put garbage, then you put mm. negator, and then I put, then you put like dinner. And oh. what, you know what I'm saying? Yes, it like colors it. But yes, it doesn't completely express it. Yes. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And imagine that's done in concert with like a whole meeting and uh, with a whole conversation, maybe even a group of people. Yeah. How interesting that could all become. Yeah. And so, mm. and, and then there's like, there's further possibilities with the other type of stack mm. operators, like with the flip or like with the combining ones. So like, um, you know, that type of thing. And it's like, and you can imagine if your brain worked that way, 
you could do some really amazing things and kind of like express ideas in totally wacky ways just with this language. I like that a lot. That's yeah. cool. I like that about about English so much. It's the only language that I can speak. So I'm coming from a place of being way less informed than you are. How many languages are you fluent in? Oh, practically none. I, I oh, okay, can, I can do English. Well, that's kind of unfair, I've, though. I've t- you can I've, speak a lot of a lot of. I mean, like you I've know, I've studied this over stuff. twenty. I've studied over twenty. Okay. Yeah. To me, I'm I'm I have such a warm feeling to to English because I feel like I'm able to really exhaust how how I can express and be as, as, as I don't have the right words for it right now, ironically enough, but yeah. <laughs> I can, I can talk about, I can get it out. Yeah, it's one yeah. of the things we do in this podcast is like over an amount of time, I can get this all out in a way that is not limited when I studied Latin, like a classical language like that is. Right. Right. And, um, I'm really grateful for that. Are there any languages on uh, planet earth that are being used that weren't created for something else that you think, might have an advantage over others as far as create creativity is concerned. Like the reasons that I like it, the reasons that we just talked about why stacks would be kind of a fun way to do it. Like is, is English the one that you find like me? That's the only one I know. So I'm kind of like, yeah, this is a great one, but is there, you were talking about Arabic earlier. Is that more exciting in a way for you to, to get into in that way? Well, uh, I'll, I'll say this. So every language is mutually translatable. Um, the only question is developing your brain within it though. Well, the, well, the only question is if, if you can express the same thing as economically as you can in one language over another, that um, matters a lot. The or, time you think, uh, um, well, no, just like, you know, for example, you've probably heard of like, you know, oh, this language has, you know, a single small word for like, you know, the, the tuft of dirt that, uh, like, like, uh, marmot leaves when it pops out of the ground, you know, it's like, you can say both of those things in that language and in English. It's just in English, you got to use a lot more words to say it. So you, so it's not like a central concept. So that's part of it. And the other part of it are the cultural associations that are, are carried with a particular word. And that is something that you really have to be a speaker of the language to fully understand, appreciate, and to make use of. So like, think about like words like awesome, versus wonderful versus marvelous versus outstanding. All right. It's like each of those words has contexts where you would feel good about using those words over other ones, even though they all kind of mean the same thing, right? Like marvelous. Think about how much less you're going to use that word. And why it makes sense where you have a show called like, you know, the Marvelous Miss Maisie. Marvelous Miss Melisandre. <laughs> okay. Like, and it's just like, it fits the theme of that show, right? Like it makes sense. Yeah. Right? Right. But on the other hand, like, you know, if you're just talking to a friend of yours and say like, hey man, you want to, you want to meet up downtown? And oh. Like, oh yeah. Marvelous. Yeah. That'd be marvelous. <laughs> See? Now, a non- Native speaker is not going to get that. If you translate that into Spanish right. or like French, even it's even it has the same cognate, yeah. they're not necessarily going to get the same thing because they don't have exactly the right. same That's what I was getting at. That's what I was getting at. Right. And so it's like when it comes or to using like, – oh, go ahead. I would say or it's like booty call versus butt dial. Oh, yes. Ah. That's great. Yeah. But, Those are two very different things, but the also cultural the cultural connotation thing. of that is so different. Yeah. And so it's like, that's the thing that's hard to get when you're going from one language to another. It takes so much experience and so much learning to, to really get a good feel for it. 
And so it's like when it comes to learning another language, it's not necessarily the case that any grammatical structure is going to be better than another or is going to give you any more advantages. It's just that you might have the opportunity to use words in a different way that draws different memories Mm. out of the people that hear it that you can't necessarily do with the same words or even similar words uh, in a different language. Because it's not, you know, it, it doesn't have those same associations, especially if it's strongly tied to a region. You know what I mean? I, yeah, completely. Yeah. I, I think about that kind of thing a lot. And um, I'm, I'm grateful for the operating system that I was brought up in. Yeah. And I'm just wondering how it measures up against the other ones that are available to us. Oh, I mean, you know, it's it's great. But it's at the same time, it's like, how do I say this? <sighs> It's like it's so hard to translate something from one language to another and expect that you're going to get the same feel out of it. It can be done, but it requires a lot of skill. It requires somebody who really deeply understands not only the languages, but the cultures associated with those languages and the and the the history and the myths that they draw from. You know, like I read what I consider to be a very poor translation of The Journey to the West, which is one of the four great classic Chinese novels. Um, it was translated in English. It was translated very competently. That is, there were no grammatical errors or anything like that. But I read it and it was like, I could read things and I was like, I know that in the original, there are a bunch of references to history and, and to literature and to just society that are not coming through in the English and that are completely going over my head. And there are no end notes for this. And so it's like, I feel like I read 50% of the book, even though I read the whole thing, you know, it's, it would be like, um, imagine if like you wrote in, uh, there's like just some dialogue in a book and it's like, you know, and some guy is like, you know, kind of like over head over heels in love. And he like accidentally, he almost trips over his friend. And his friend says like, you know, whoa there, Romeo, what are you doing? And so it's like, imagine that gets translated into another language where they don't read Shakespeare at all. Never even heard of him. Right. Right. And so like, they, and then they just translate it straight up. And they're reading this like, why did they call this? Why do you call this guy by a different name? It makes no sense. That's weird. Know. Also, whoa, there is kind of specific, Mm -hmm. a a way to say something as well. It's a cowboy term, isn't it? Right. Yeah. Right. And none of those associations are going to (laughs) come from this. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. And so anyway, like um, that's part of the problem of translation. And it's one of those things where at the very least, it's nice to be able to spot when it's happening. You know, so at the very least, you know, you know what? I'm missing something here. And so I'll appreciate this might sound better Mm -hmm. than the original. Like that's the bare minimum. Uh, but it's like it's much better if at least, even if you can't get it through in the translation, just provide an end note and say this was the context of this, and this is how it feels to readers of that language. You know, anyway. Okay, so I don't know what what else are we doing. That's I think is that's it, it. Are we going to start now? Uh, yeah, let's 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 get this. We were talking about Game of Thrones <laughs> season eight, the final season of Game of Thrones. Who all lives? Right. Who dies? It all ends here. Hashtag for the throne. Okay. The following characters die. (laughs) (laughs) 
Were you, uh, my dog is, he loves you. He's yeah. like, you're wearing a very familiar shirt. It's a good I'm gonna cover it in my hair. It's a good little guy. I you like you guy. liked all the stuff you worked on in the final season? A-okay? Uh, so this season, I will say, more than any anything else, I've never seen a level of security. Um, like I have, uh, even you just gave the, me a very serious look, everyone. No, yeah, but not joking. Even <laughs> even more so than on the Marvel movies, um, I've never seen a level of security like I did for this season of Game of Thrones. Um, you know, I, wow. I you know I got to go to the set this year. Really? Yeah, they didn't pay to bring me out. Of course, very cool. Yeah, uh, but, but luckily, no, I'm serious. They wouldn't pay anything for me. Jesus Christ! But um, but uh, at least I didn't pay for me. Uh, I had a trip to Belgium. And I was like, check this out. If I stop in Belfast, uh, I can actually get cheaper tickets than if I just went direct. Wow. And they're like, okay, let's do it. So they paid for me to go to the set of Game of Thrones. So when you showed up, were they like, who are you? What are you doing here? They're like, yeah, it was a very typical Hollywood thing. It's like, oh, it's so cool. You made it. That's awesome. (laughs) Anyway. But it's like, so like, I was like, well, hey, you know, I'll go get my picture taken on the set. Nope. Not this season. Oh. No pictures. Not only that, this wasn't just for me. This is for anybody working on the show, period. Yeah. Even the cast and crew. There was a narrow security entrance. And when you went in, there was a security guard there to put stickers over the cameras on your phone. Mm. Just in case it went off accidentally. Mm. So uh, for, for Game of Thrones, this is the only season where I didn't even get partial scripts. In fact, I didn't get any scripts. Uh, I got the lines and I couldn't, I had to write them down by hand because they were only up on the screen and I couldn't take like screenshots of it. And so um, aside from the exact lines that I had to translate and very minimal like scene setting up, mm-hmm. uh, I could, I could email them and ask for more context if I needed it. Can um, you do I that didn't now? see anything else. <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't see anything else. And furthermore, I don't know if you heard the rumor about them filming like fake endings. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I, th- I think that, and I say this very hesitantly because I genuinely don't know. I think they may have been trying to give me some disinformation oh, in some of the stuff that I was translating. Some crazy shit that you translated. Because. Interesting. I just didn't understand it. Like at all. Like mm-hmm. I didn't, I didn't understand what I was looking at or why it made absolutely no sense. And so I thought there must be something up with this. And the, the only reason they would be doing this with me is if it's really, really secret. So I don't even want to ask. Wow. Um, so I'm, I'm looking forward to see what happens. I'm looking forward to seeing what happens with that scene uh, to see like, it, you know, if it was, you know, exactly like what, if it was disinformation or not. Can you tell me that that was on episode six? Um, it, it may have been, I don't know. Oh yeah. Uh, you, just, you didn't get any of that information. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, and so we'll see, but I, I will also say that, uh, and I, I say this very truly, I'm not trying to be cute here, but like when I work on a show that I like, um, I don't enjoy spoilers. Mm. I don't like, I don't like trailers even. Me either. Yeah. So, um, so like when I get done translating this stuff, like I kind of put it out of my mind because I like just watching it fresh and not knowing what's going to happen um mm-hmm. and like that that started pretty early i just like stopped reading the scripts i was getting because i didn't want to know what happened i just kind of wanted to enjoy it so um i remember very little of what i translated for game of thrones i'm sure as i watch it it's going to come back to me but uh, i don't remember very much 
Um, I'm looking forward to Sunday and the Sundays that follow to see what happens. Oh, and yeah. Uh, yeah, I've got uh, I've got no information for you. Your princess is in another castle. <sighs> <laughs> very well then sir david thank you so much for coming by yeah thank you and uh playing please. with my dog and wearing my shirt yeah <laughs> and talking to us on the podcast and please when you tweet this out say you know david peterson dishes the dirt all the dirt on season eight come here for all of the spoilers we exclusive have interview okay well maybe Lead that'll give that. us some more listeners Lead with that <laughs> hannah is there anything else that we should do do you want to sing dido whatever you just said cut out to be honest with you. <laughs> um, so before we're done here, you should tell everyone where we they just can need to close it out. Find you on the internet, how they follow you and keep up with what you're doing. Oh, sure. Yeah. Uh, so on Twitter, you can find me at uh, Daedalus, D-E-D-A-L-V-S. So it's spelled the Latin way. There's um, an answer. I've been wondering. Sorry. Keep going. Oh, we've talked about this before, but I... Didn't remember your answer, and so now I feel like it was. Uh, it was coming up with a handle for Di- for Diablo two. Okay. Everybody took Daedalus with a U, so I spelled it with a V. Interesting. I've done that before with uh, other words. Yeah. But, yeah. So it just stuck. Um, and then on on Instagram, since I know you're on Instagram, I'm Atavrazar, which is a word from Dothraki. It means excellent because they because somebody stole my handle and they're just sitting on it. Bastards. Oh, bastards. So A T H D A V R A Z A R. Um, and then just my website, uh, is, uh, languageinvention.com. That's a pretty good URL right there. Yeah. Yeah. Our Instagram is at game of owns. We've got some stuff on the story today about this meeting, this podcast recording, and we'll also put David's insanely hard to spell handle in our Instagram story. So you can click on it. <laughs> you can go find it there. there everybody. <laughs> there you go. Smart. I think our next episode is going to be us talking about our final predictions before season eight so everybody look forward to that That's gonna be good. and then we'll be back coming on sunday with the premiere so it's been really fun david to kind of talk get nerdy with language with you it's always super fascinating to kind of hear your take behind the whole process so i love i love when we can have you on well thank you i really really appreciate being on because i just love talking <laughs> well good you've come to the right place sir. <laughs> Yeah, you've come to the right place. A captive audience. So thank you so much.